Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, this is going to be fun. We're going to open up in prayer and just dive right into it. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you for crafting together a message these next two weeks that will be so powerful to us as those fighting on your behalf out in this world and warring for our loved ones, our family members, our friends. God, give us the strength and the understanding out of your word to withstand every tactic of the enemy and what has been happening all the way from the beginning. And so, Lord, we love you. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit and your anointing and teach us all things from 1 John 2.27, God. Let us see the truth of your word from a fresh perspective this morning. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so let there be war. You're just going to see me smile a lot about this, this, the title of this message because I think it is maybe one of the coolest titles God has ever put together on a message. <laughs> but maybe I'm just biased. I don't know. So the Bible, when you really think about this, the Bible can be viewed as a chronicle of supernatural warfare. And I think part of the problem that we in the church today, we get lulled into really watering down the supernatural in the Bible. But men walked on water, axe heads floated in the Old Testament, donkeys spoke to people, angels came and went and dined with people. They came and rescued Lot before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. They came and dined with Abraham. They, all through the Bible, these supernatural things are happening, and yet the church today, for the most part, really views the Bible as just a chronicle of some stories and tales, and, and, but it is the coolest superhero book maybe ever written because it actually happened, and everything that did happen, we just studied kind of the climax of that supernatural warfare in the book of Revelation going verse by verse and laying out the greatest prophecies ever that will happen in detail of this final war that will manifest on the earth when Jesus returns in Revelation 19. And if that doesn't make you excited, I just don't know if you have a heartbeat because it's so cool. It is so cool. But how the war will ultimately manifest on earth and the outcome of it you know, one of the earliest statements by God is a declaration of war from Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay, that is, God is declaring war on Satan in the very beginning in the garden. And what he's saying is the seed of the woman. Now, that's not only biologically incorrect, but it predicts the virgin birth. If you remember, we talked about that a little bit last week because the seed's not in the woman, the seed's in the man. So he's predicting, God is predicting that through a virgin birth, the Messiah would come and crush the head of the serpent. 
Now that is supernatural warfare going on. And he's going to bruise his heel through the cross. And that's exactly what happened. But over the next couple of messages, we're going to look at how this warfare, it's occurred throughout the entire Bible and how it's occurring here and actually in modern times today by the enemy's attack. Next week, we're going to look at not only through the Bible, but how is he attacking us today? He's attacking us by dumbing down the word of God, watering it down, piecing apart the only weapon you have that is offensively related from Ephesians 6. Everything else is defensive. But when you really think about it, most Christians are utterly shocked to learn that we're even in a war. A lot of them, I mean, honestly, I've, I grew up going to church, taking my family to church, and the term spiritual warfare was almost like a cuss word in the churches that I grew up in. It was like, whoa, don't, that's kind of crazy. What are you talking about, spiritual warfare? Just keep that outside the doors. Uh, let's read Psalms and, and I'll go home at the end of the day. And what, what it just, it blew my mind as a kid growing up because when you put this perspective on, especially as a child, if you can view the Bible as this supernatural warfare that God is engaged in on your behalf, man, it brings a new light to the God that we serve. And he's a, he is a warrior king. He is not a, a king that sits, sits idly back and just watches things unfold. But you and I are in a war that has been lasting for what honestly could be billions and billions of years when you really look at it. And we're going to look at that some Since Satan's rebellion, the forces of darkness have tried to thwart God's plan every step of the way. And in the end, the ultimate prize for the Lord is us. You are his heritage, the Bible says. You are God's ultimate prize, which is why he died for you and not for the angels. You're created in his image. They are not. And so you are the prize that he was willing to go to the cross and hang there for. You're it. And in the end, that's what we all have to look forward to. When all of this passes away, heaven and earth pass away, the thing that remains is his heritage, and that's us. So we're in a war with an an enemy that wants to kill you. You need to have that in mind. Satan does not want to fight you. He wants to kill you. That is his goal. His goal is not to be in a ring and to fight with you. It is to take you out any way he can. And too many Christians think we're merely in this ring to fight and kind of do this dance back and forth. But we're in a life or death warfare. That's the truth of the matter. Look at 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may harm a little. That's not what it says. (laughs) It says whom he may devour. Devour. He wants to devour you. That is his goal. Now, whom he may, okay, whom he may implies that there's a way that you can withstand that, and that's by knowing the word of God and being on the offense with the the weapon of your warfare. I heard a a prophet tell this story a few months ago, maybe last summer, but he was talking to a guy in the special forces, and this guy in the special forces was, was describing how his unit, his arm of the, of the special forces was so elite, they would only let orphans come into it because they didn't want you to have any ties to anyone on earth that would be looking for you because it basically was a, a death sentence. If you got sent out in this group, 
you into the deepest, darkest places and remote areas of the, of the world, never to be heard of again. And who knows if you survived or not. You may not ever make contact again back with the military. That's how elite it was. And they went into groups of six. And each person was a specialist in their kind of form of combat. One was a sniper, one was a hand-to-hand combat guy, one was a demolition guy, one was a medic, you know, that kind of team. And so this, this prophet was talking to him just saying, hey, the greatest fighter to ever live was maybe Bruce Lee because he was a, a master at his artistry, at fighting, at martial arts, at what he did. How do you think your best hand-to-hand guy would fare with this guy? And he said it wouldn't even be a contest. Our guy would kill him in two seconds because Bruce Lee is trained to fight you in the ring and dance with you. Our guys were trained to walk up and kill you and keep walking in two seconds. That's what they were trained to do. That is the perspective you need to have of Satan and the enemy. He wants to kill you. He wants to take you out and take out your children and fight and not stand and fight with you. He wants to devour you from 1 Peter 5.8. So keep that in mind. John 10.10 This is Jesus. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So that you can look at this almost as an order or standalone objectives by the enemy. Steal, kill, and destroy. Meaning there could be an order for the enemy to kill and destroy you in which he must steal something first. So what could he steal from a believer in order to kill and destroy you? For starters, he can steal your hope. He can steal the word of God. He can isolate you. He can try to get you alone. It's exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. His tactics are not different. They're repackaged today, but it's the same. He's not creative. It's the exact same methods he used all the way back in the Garden. Look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yes, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Look at the doubt he's trying to plant right away. Hath God said. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do today. He wants to plant doubt in your mind. Hath God really said that? Did he really say that? I don't know that he said that. I think he said this over here. If he can, as soon as he can get you to believe something different than the word of God, then you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable and you'll be isolated. Then he can destroy you. That's the goal, to isolate, segregate, make you have doubt, and then destroy. The most underutilized weapon of our warfare is the word of God. And it's the most unread book, really, for the modern Christian. I can't tell you how many decades I spent in Bible studies and the debates would go on forever on which book we were going to study next. This new author had this, this author had this. Here's this great new book that's number one on Amazon. We should do that. And it was funny because every time I would just say, guys, there are 66 books that we could pick any one of them. It's, it's called the Word of God. Just pick one. Pick any one of them. And we can study it. But it literally is, it, I promise you, it is the most unread book to the modern Christian. And I'm not saying for all of us in this room, I'm just saying the church globally as a whole. A lot of people are quick to pick up a commentary and very slow to pick up the word of God because that's, that's what the enemy wants you to believe is that you need someone to explain it to you. It's exactly like on Mount Sinai when God rained down in Exodus, he spoke to the children of Israel 
and he was, he was in fire and thunders and lightnings and these dark clouds, and he spoke to them directly. And remember, what did they do? They left, and they all went to Moses, and they said, hey, please do not ever let that happen again. We want you to go talk to God and come tell us what he says. And from that day forward, it was utter failure because God didn't want that. He wanted to speak directly to them. And that's exactly what he wants today is to speak directly to you. But it's the same thing, just repackaged. A lot of people want someone to tell them what God is saying instead of just listening to what God. So we need the entire armor of God to be victorious in this warfare. Look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's the only offensive weapon listed here. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplications for all saints. That's the offensive weapon. You know, Jesus wears each piece of this armor. In Ephesians 6.15, look at this. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. When you go to Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. There's a connection with him bringing peace with his feet. And I think if you really studied this long enough, you would see that every piece of that armor you could find Jesus wearing somewhere in the Old Testament. You've just got to look deep enough into it. But his feet brought peace. That's no coincidence from Ephesians 6 that you're to shod your feet with peace. In Zechariah 14.4, this is ultimately when his feet do bring peace. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. Remember when he returns in Revelation 19 and he has that errand to run first to get the children of Israel out of Basra. Then, from Isaiah 63, then he has an errand on the Mount of Olives. And there is a fault line under the Mount of Olives. It's waiting for the pressure of a foot. And it's the foot of our Messiah to stand on that mountain and to cleave. It'll cleave. Now, why does it cleave? Because when he builds that millennium temple, the rivers that flow out of it of living water go to the east, and it's to make way for it to go to the east. So that's why he's got to split that mountain in half. Pretty amazing. All right, look back at this at Ephesians 6.12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, 
against spiritual wickedness in high places. Four ranks of angels in the Greek. So in the Greek, in Ephesians 6.12, this is a listing of ranks of angels, the principalities, powers, rulers, and spiritual wickedness. And I will totally butcher the Greek, so I'm not going to even attempt to announce the words, but it's, it's archons or arcades, and then on from there. The Greek words are, are in parentheses for you guys. But those are ranks of angels. And when you study principalities anywhere in the Bible, it's talking about angelic entities of higher order that we are fighting and warring against. That's who our warfare is against. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the power behind that flesh and blood. And you see that really come to light in Daniel 10. Remember Daniel's fasting for 21 days. An angel breaks through finally to get a message to him. And he says, from the day you started fasting, it took me 21 days to get here. And I had to fight the prince of the power of Persia to make it. And then he tells him, and when I leave, I've got to go find the prince of the power of Greece. And so he's even telling Daniel, I fought this one principality. I had to call Michael to do it also, but I've got to go fight this other one next. Okay, in Ephesians 1.21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. There's that word, that principality and power. Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. See, God wants you to know what you're fighting. He doesn't want the enemy to be hidden from you. He wants you to know you're in this warfare, and this is who you're fighting, Satan and the fallen angels. What if you knew this warfare dated all the way back to before Genesis 1-2? You know, when I, when I started learning and studying this, this gave me a new perspective of the Bible. It really did. And I'm hoping this gives you an appreciation for how long God has been fighting these wars on our behalf. So what if born-again warriors knew Jesus as the warrior king that he has been since the beginning? What if we were all empowered to stand and take the fight to the enemy? How different would your family look, our schools, our communities, our nation, the world? You know, I'm totally convinced most of what's happening in the world right now, all around us, is because the church allowed it. If, if, we had, if we were empowered by the word of God and would have been on our knees praying against this as a group, none of this would have happened. It would have stopped the, the this day it started. It would have stopped. And look at this. In Numbers 21, Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea in the books of Arnon, I cannot wait to get to heaven and read this book, the book of the wars of the Lord. He has fought a lot of them on our behalf. He's fought a lot of them that we don't have in the Bible. He is a God of war that stands up and fights for his people. He led the charge at Jericho. He, remember, he's talking to Joshua in Joshua 5. He's, he's not an armchair quarterback that just directs his people and says, hey, I need you to go tear down this city. Jericho, I need you to go do it, and sits back and just watches. Man, Mason, you messed up. You should have gone left. I said, I said, go right. You went left. I just No, he's there. He's fighting the warfare. Okay, he's fighting it. One of the biggest problems we have in this, honestly, is openness of mind. 
See, everything that you read in the Bible, you read with some preconceived notion, I'll say. And we all have things that we've heard in school and college and church and speakers and how you've read the Bible forever. But what I want you to do just for the rest of this message, just I want you to set aside everything that you think you know about Genesis 1 and just set it aside for just a minute and just listen with an open mind. Acts 17.11, the namesake of the men's Bible study that meets here. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of, with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Receiving the word with readiness of mind, that's really the challenge. Because a lot of times you'll sit down, you'll open the Bible, and you'll read something and you think, yeah, I remember studying that years ago, I don't need to keep dwelling on that. But the Spirit, he will teach you something fresh every time you open God's word, if you allow him. And petition him to sit with you, 1 John 2.27, we're going to read that in a second. But receiving the word with readiness of mind is the challenge. Proverbs 18.13, he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and a shame unto him. You know, some of you may have heard me say, hey, there's a war that happened before Genesis 1-2, and you might be sitting there going, man, Matt is off his rocker, and I think he's wrong, so I'm not even going to listen to it. You've answered the matter before you even heard it, just so you know. Proverbs 18:13. <laughs> Edmund Spencer this is a great quote. There's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is condemnation before investigation. So don't condemn something before you really search the scriptures. You've got to search the Bible, though, to prove that these things are true. With all of that in mind, let's explore Genesis 1. And Again, I, just, I want you to approach this with an open mind. Let the Holy Spirit guide us. 1 John 2.27 But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. You know, we talk about that verse a lot here at the church because that's, that's our teacher. It's not me. It's not anybody up on this stage. The Holy Spirit is our teacher to teach us everything. Look at the next verse and how much this fits into the mission statement of the church. 1 John 2.28, the very next verse. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, that's the rapture, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. How cool is that? That, that the second part of that verse is all about the mission statement he gave us for the church to foster strengthen and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus's return a bride that's not to be ashamed before him because you have chased after him with everything you have again he can give you the wedding garment he can't dress you he's got you've got to put that on yourself and shed everything out of your life that you know he doesn't want there okay genesis 1 some, some questions here for you to ponder as we unpack this. What day in the creation account was the earth created? So when you get down to Genesis 1, 3 and beyond, there's, you start getting into such and such and such and such were the first day, day one, day two, etc. It's a trick question because it wasn't. The earth is created in verse one. 
It's not created in the six days of, of what I like to sarcastically call recreation. But it's not there. Would God create something without form and void or confused in the Hebrew? Who is the author of confusion? It's not God. It's Satan. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. So when were the angels created? They cheered when the earth was formed from Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job 38 is a phenomenal chapter of, the God, of God quizzing Job to try to root out his pride that Job thought he knew a lot, but God had some corrections for him. Job 38 is God's dialogue with him. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Obviously, Job was not even around. Declare if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened. In other words, he hung it on nothing, which he did. Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So, that word in the Hebrew, sons of God, is benaihe Elohim. And it always, in the entire Old Testament, is always speaking of angels. So the angels cheered. They shouted for joy when God created the earth. So they were created at some point before Genesis 1-1. And then think about this. How do you get a full day in, in, from only evening and morning? When you go in through creation... In chapter 1, it's the evening and the morning were day 1. Evening and morning were day 2. Where's the rest of the day? You know, it's kind of like a, a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. kind of thing. So where's the rest of the day? Just think about that. Keep that in the back of your mind. So there's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, the cheers, the, the cheers came from the angels at this point. He created it. The angels are cheering him for creating it. Now, why would they cheer? Well, when you think about it, and, and I don't know that I necessarily put this in the notes, I maybe should have, but it originally was created to be inhabited as their domain. That's why they're cheering. And, and the, we're going to see that, I think, in a couple of these. But in Genesis 1-2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Okay, and the grammatical structure here in verse 2 in the Hebrew, it implies an action that was as a result of a judgment. So the earth was without form. It really, that word haya, the was, you, there's the superscript. Each one of those numbers links to a number down at the bottom here. So was in the Hebrew is haya in, this, in the Hebrew. It really means had become or come to pass. And there's a lot of references where it's used in the Bible in that way. It's the same word that, that God uses of Lot's wife when she is leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and she looks back, she had become a pillar of salt. So same thing, same structure, grammatical structure in the Hebrew. So what God is saying is the earth had become without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The second word without form in the Hebrew is tohu, without form. It's confused or confusion, okay, without form. It, it had, you can't see order in the creation. And again, remember, God's not the author of confusion. So somehow it got confused. How did that happen? 
The third one, void, bohu. It means emptiness, void, a wasteland. Think about that. So the earth had become confused, without order, an empty wasteland. That brings a whole new perspective on what is God saying here all the way at the beginning in Genesis 1. So the Hebrew words tohu, wabohu, when they're used together, it's always used as the result of a judgment. So there is a judgment that had been coming upon the world for something. Some, for some reason, God had to judge it. Okay, the fourth one, darkness, in the Hebrew, that last bullet, it literally means an unnatural darkness that can be felt. It's the same darkness that comes upon Egypt during the plagues. Remember, they were gnashing their teeth. It was that kind of darkness they could feel, that it was, they were tormented by it. Remember their tongues, they wanted to gnaw their tongues off, the the Egyptians, because of this unnatural darkness that could be felt. That's the darkness that is hovering over the earth at this point. So that's verse 1 and 2. Now, when you go to Isaiah 45, 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. He created it, that word right there, not in vain, is tohu. It's the same Hebrew word. He created it not confused, without order, empty, as a wasteland. He didn't create it that way. So how did it get that way? It's that way the second verse of the Bible. But in 45, Isaiah 45, 18, he says he didn't create it that way. Now, we know from chapter 3 of Genesis that Satan has already fallen. And what does he have against Adam and Eve? He just shows up, and he, and he has something against them all of a sudden. He never shows up, and you don't hear the dialogue that maybe they had for, I don't know, thousands, millions of years. Who knows how long they interacted. But Satan just shows up, and he, he wants to, like we talked at the beginning, kill them. He wants to kill Adam and Eve. So why? What did he have against them? Okay, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 27. This is a judgment declared by God in Jeremiah 4 that doesn't fit anywhere else in the Bible except if you put it between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form, tohu, and void, bohu, and the heavens, and they had no light. Look what Jeremiah is saying. There was no light yet. Remember, light is created in Genesis 1-3. It's not created yet. There was no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they tremble. And all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man. Man wasn't created yet. There was no Adam in the Hebrew. And all the birds of heavens were fled away. Now remember, birds of the heavens in the Bible, God always uses that as an idiom of Satan's minions. From Matthew 13, the seven kingdom parables, the birds of heaven would come to the, remember the sower with the throwing out the seed, which was the word of God, and the birds of heavens would come and snatch it away. There was one with the parable of the mustard tree where they lodged in the branches. Those were Satan's minions where the church got so big that it allowed Satan's minions to come in and be a part of the congregation. Okay, and all the birds of heaven heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, 
and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine? And by his fierce anger, for thus hath the Lord said, the whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. So this judgment, I want you to get this picture of what's going on here. God created the earth in verse 1 to be as a dominion for the angels. They rebelled. Satan and his angels, a third of them, rebelled against God. Remember, they, from Revelation we learned, he took a third of them with him. They rebelled. This war ensued. A war. God had war on Satan. And then, before it was a total wilderness for what could have been billions and billions of years until the Holy Spirit of God brewed over it and started to put it all back together. Look at what God tells Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Replenish. Why would Adam and Eve need to replenish the earth? What's going on there? It's the same, same commandment, exact same that he gives Noah and his family when they exit the ark in Genesis 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now, we know why Noah and his family would have to replenish because God just wiped out every living soul on earth. But why Adam and Eve? What are they replenishing? You know, when you think about it, more questions start to come up, and God is saying in Proverbs 25, 2, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. The honor of kings is to search out a matter. So searching this out, this is... This is fruitful. Genesis 1.5, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So we talked about this. How, why is it only evening and morning? It'd only be half a day. What about the other 12 hours? Well, the words in the Hebrew are Arab and Boker. So in the evening and the morning, evening is Arab. It originally meant difficult to discern when darkness denied the ability to see order. As a result, it became associated with evening or twilight when the sun started to go down. So originally it was meaning you couldn't discern. It was chaotic. It was out of order. You, you walk into your garage after you cleaned it and a month later and it's all out of order again because the kids have gotten scooters out and bikes and, and leaves have blown in and it's now back to chaos. It's like that. You're seeing chaos. Okay, it originally meant difficult to discern. So it later became associated with twilight or evening because as the sun's going down, they couldn't discern what was in front of them. Proverbs 7 verse 9, in the twilight in the evening, or Arab, in the black and dark of night. Jeremiah 6 4, prepare ye war against her, arise and let us go up at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening, or Arab, are stretched out. Okay, God's using that, that term, meaning they can't discern then. Boker, it originally meant becoming visible, beginning to put in order, to be put in order, relief from obscurity. As a result, it became associated with morning or sunrise because you could start to see again. But in the Hebrew, it's originally, think about it from a mathematics standpoint. It's chaos and order. Those are the two words you need to have in mind when thinking about this, chaos and order. So when you think about it that way, in the evening and the morning of the first day, and the chaos was turned to order and was the first day. The chaos was order, day two. Chaos and order, day three. 
It's God putting it all back together. Genesis 19.27, And Abraham got up early in the morning, or Bokar, to the place where, they, where he stood before the Lord. Okay, so days one through six, Arab and Boker discerning, cha- decreasing chaos and adding order. Think about that way. In math and engineering school, we would study entropy curves, and entropy was chaos. And as you reduced entropy, it would get to order and more order and more order. Same thing that's happening here. It's, a, it's an entropy curve is the first six days of creation or recreation. That's why in day seven, there is no Arab and Boker. Sure, there was an evening and morning, but God doesn't declare that because everything's put back in order. His work was finished. So each day, God also saw what he did, and it was good except one day, Monday or day two. That's why we all hate Mondays, I guess. He, he did not say it was good. Genesis 1, 6 through 8 is day two, and he never saw it was good. Day three on Tuesday He says it was good twice, and that's why the Jews call Tuesday the day of double blessing. And no surprise, it's the third day, right? Everything great happens on the third day. Third day is always from death to life in the Bible. That's why it's the day of double blessing. It's also why most Jewish weddings happen on a Tuesday. And when you look at John 2, verse 1, Jesus at the wedding in Cana And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana. Well, nowhere in John chapter 1 does it say a third day from anything. So what is he talking about? A third day from what? It just was the third day of the week. That's what he's talking about, because the Jews get married on the third day, typically. I've only been to one Jewish wedding my whole life. It was a blast. It was in Memphis. But Arab and Boker, decreasing chaos and adding order. That's what it's about. Think of everything created in the first time in the six days of Genesis 1. Okay, remember back in Jeremiah 4, the judgment? I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. Light was created in verse 3, not before that. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. See, we're going back in the millennium, In the new heaven and the new earth, we're going back to how God originally intended before Genesis 1-2, where it was, there is no sun. You don't need the sun because Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. That's why in Revelation, when we studied that, there's no sun in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus is the light of the world. Incredible. Genesis 1-16, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. One of my favorite Bible teachers ever, Chuck Missler, he had a tie that just said he made the stars also. And when he would go to conferences, people would ask him, what does that mean? And so he would, he would wear that to secular business meetings and things and just start a conversation with people on. They're the ones that asked. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So at Genesis 1.16, I'm just giving you a couple examples. He creates two great lights. What are those? One to rule the day, one to rule the night. That's the sun and the moon. They weren't created before then. Now, all of this is important because this solves the mystery that I have listened to Christians fight and debate about in my, my entire life, which is, is the earth young or old? 
What's the, what's the answer? Because if you look at it scientifically, there's evidence for both. But people look at the moon and say, well, it's very, very young. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But this, this answers that question. Okay, is the earth young or old? So when you put it all together, it appears that both are correct. Created ages ago, Satan rebelled. God judged the world. It, it set desolate for what could have been billions of years. Billions. And then the Spirit of God was the only thing that could bring it back together. Talk about a lesson in pride to Satan. You know, you think you're going to take this from me. I'm going to let it sit desolate as a wasteland for billions of years in this darkness that you can feel. And you're going to be able to do nothing about it because you rebelled against me. Recreation began around 6,000 years ago. When you take the genealogies from Jesus back to Adam to when he fell, it's about 6,000 years. So when you look at the earth and these scientists find things that, well, this looks like it's 3 billion years old. This looks like it's 4 billion years old. This looks like it's 800 million, quadrillion, zillion years old. I mean, they keep moving the, the goalpost down every time they look at it. But when you look at that, and then you look at the genealogies in the Bible, it seems like a contradiction, because man is only about 6,000 years old, roughly. And, but I'm here to tell you it's not a contradiction. You've got to search the scriptures, and then all of a sudden it all fits. So when you look at the moon, when NASA was preparing uh, and designing the, the lunar lander to travel into space back before, long before I was born, uh, some of you in here may have been a part of that. But back before I was born, they were concerned about moon dust, right? Because radio radiation from the sun creates a layer of moon dust on the surface every day. And it's something very, very, very small. Very small. But if the moon and the sun were 8 billion years old, the whole thing may just be dust. And they didn't know. And so they were preparing these landers to be able to if they landed and they started to sink down to be able to reverse quickly and get out of there so the guys weren't stuck on the moon forever, you know, until they died. But when they landed, what happened? They landed and they found, oh, there's only about 6,000 years of dust on here. Why is that? We thought this thing was billions of years old. Well, it wasn't created until the six days of recreation. And so it is about 6,000 years old. But the earth was created billions of years before that. And so when you put this together, man, it makes science come alive. It makes science feel like, okay, there's no contradiction here. Because in the Bible, there is no contradiction. You just have to know where to look. Well, about thermodynamics, the first law, matter and energy cannot be created nor destroyed. But the second law, energy and heat loss when a transfer occurs. So every time you do something for work, Every time you pick up a, a phone, every time you mow your lawn, every time you do something, there's a transfer that occurs in an efficiency loss. There is no 100% efficiency in energy transfer. It always loses something. So what that means is if the earth were infinitely old, as, people try, as scientists try to claim, there'd be a universal temperature because everything, all heat moves from hot to cold bodies. You know, you set a coffee cup out, it gets lukewarm after so much time, right? The heat dissipates into the atmosphere. So the fact that we can still work and there is still a transfer of heat, it's proof 
that it had a starting point. And that starting point was just much, much longer ago than a lot of people think. Look at Isaiah 14. Now, this is, remember, this is why Satan fell. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now, you know, all through the Bible, God changes the name of his people, right? Saul became Paul, Abram becomes Abraham, etc. Lucifer was the name when he was the anointed cherub that covered God's throne. It means light bearer. It wasn't until he rebelled that God changed his name in the reverse to Hasatan or Satan, as we know him today. Hasatan, that means adversary, your, your enemy, the one that seeks to devour you. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, this is why he rebelled, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's the same lie he gave Eve in the garden, remember? As soon as you eat of this, you'll be like God. It's the same lie that's propagated to your children through the New Age movement. Get to a certain level of enlightenment and you can be like God. Jesus was just our model Get to a certain level of enlightenment, you can be like the Messiah. You could change water to wine. Well, you could if, if Jesus empowers you to, but not because you reached a certain level of enlightenment. It's the same lie. It's just repackaged. It's all repackaged over and over and over and over. That's the warfare we're in. Look what God says to him, though. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee. And consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness? When did Satan do that? Not in our lifetime. He hasn't. Not since man has been created. He hasn't made the world a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of his prisoners. I think this is a link God is saying back to the war before Genesis 1-2. That's when Satan made the world as a wilderness and destroyed all the cities thereof. That's why they find these cities on the depth of the ocean, on the ocean floor, that they don't know where to fit in human history because they're not looking before Genesis (laughs) 1-2. They're looking, they're trying to fit it within this 6,000 years and there's no, no species of man that's been there that opened not the house of his prisoners. The world that then was, look at this, 2 Peter 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? How many of you have heard that recently? Man, I've heard this for my whole life almost. You know, you guys talk about the rapture. Where is this? Where is the promise of his coming? They literally are fulfilling Bible prophecy by scoffing at the, at the rapture, and they don't even know it. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. See, what they're saying is God doesn't intervene in the affairs of man because he, just because he hasn't done it on a dramatic scale in their lifetime doesn't mean he doesn't do it. He's patient. He's waiting. He's waiting for as many people to get into the ark as can, and then he's going to come down and take us home. For this 
They willingly are ignorant. Man, that is a stern word from the Lord. Of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly man. Look at that at verse, at verse 3, verse 6. The war, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water. The world standing, the old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water. I think God is linking that also to the flood before Genesis 1-2. Because Noah's flood, the earth wasn't in the water and out of the water. It was all in the water. But here, something happened when the world was in the water and yet out of the water. Okay, what is this Rahab that God has destroyed? I heard a guy talk about this some years ago. And I thought, this now this is some deep, awesome thoughts. So, so I, had to, I had to add this in here. Psalms 87.4, I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre, with Ethiopia, this man was born there. Psalms 89.10, Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. Isaiah 5.51.9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon. Now, who's the dragon? It's Satan, right? Now, this is a different Hebrew word. This is not Rahab that got saved by Joshua and the spies, right? This is a different Hebrew word. This is the only place in the Bible that this Hebrew word Rahab is used in these three spots. And when you look at this and study this in the Hebrew, they think of it as the root of all arrogance, Now, think about that. What did we just read in Isaiah 14? What was Satan's reason for his fall? It was arrogance and pride. I will set my throne on the sides of the north. I will be like God. It's always pride, which is why God hates pride. It's why he did what he did to Job to knead out that last bit of pride he had in his life. But I want you to notice, too, in Job, who set the battle lines for that? It was God, right? The sons of God came to God in his throne, and God even says, have you guys considered my servant Job? There's none like him that, are, that is that righteous. You can take everything from him, but you can't touch him. And Satan had to obey. Then he comes back and says, well, of course he's still worshiping you. He's got his health. Okay, you can take his health, but you can't kill him. And they had to obey again. See, a lot of Christians read that and they go, man, that is, what is happening to this poor guy, Job? And this, the whole point of the story is to show you that when you are in him, nothing comes before you that is not father filtered. The question is, are you confident enough and competent enough with the weapons of your warfare, the word of God, to fight what God allows to come into your life? And when he allows it, he's allowing it for a reason. In Hebrews, it says, praise God if you're chastened because you're a legitimate son. You know, what kind of father lets their, their kids run off 
and do whatever they want without correcting them. Not a good one. And God is a loving father. He, he is building a family for eternity, and that's the point. But this word here, Rahab, it's referred to as the root of arrogance. Now look what he did. He, Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? And then in Psalms 89.10, thou hast broken Rahab in pieces. What in the world is Rahab? What did God break into pieces? And how did, he, how did he wound the dragon through it? Well, when you look at our solar system and you look at the planets, the bottom right picture shows it probably the best for you to see. Look at how neat and close these planets are in orbit around the sun. But there's one missing. And scientists have theorized for centuries, what is missing? Why is there this asteroid belt between between Mars and Jupiter, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Jupiter, Mars and Jupiter. So Jupiter is the one outside, Mars is the one closest inside next to Earth. You know, what is that? And I heard this, this Hebrew guy talk about this years ago, and I, actually I, I searched all day yesterday for his videos so I could put a link here, and of course, like most things, it's been canceled uh, because he used the name of Jesus. Can't do that on YouTube these days. Get canceled quick. Um, can't have the truth out there. You know, people might get saved and live a normal life. So this asteroid belt, this asteroid belt, what he was, he was theorizing that this in the Hebrews, when you study this in ancient Hebrews, they have literature about this. This was Rahab. This was a planet that somehow was linked to the dragon and that they had dominion over also and God cut it into pieces and wounded the dragon, all as a part of these wars that he fought before Genesis 1-2. Now that is amazing. That is so cool. That makes, you know, the Marvel Avengers movies look just like pathetic in comparison. Because there's this intergalactic warfare that actually is happening. And if people really studied this in the Bible, I know if, if I would have known this as a kid, man, I would have been, there's no other book I would have read. I would have never read a comic book if I would have known this was a part of the Bible. But I just thought that was really cool because nobody's been able to figure out, it's, they've thought it's some kind of big rock for years that's just broken apart due to collisions or whatever. I don't know. To me, I don't, you don't see any of the other planets broken up. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it as to why it would be in orbit right between Mars and Jupiter. So that could be Rahab. Search the scriptures and see and let the Holy Spirit talk to you. But let's get into the Word of God and understand the warfare we've been called into. So next week, what I want to do is, when you have this, this filter of, okay, this war's been lasting for billions and billions of years, and we're the prize in it, how does it manifest today? And what do we as Christians need to do? What is Satan's strategy today? What has it been since Genesis 3? How has he been attacking the church and God's people since then? So next week, we're going to do a deep dive into that. And again, what I want you to think about is the only offensive weapon you and I have is the word of God. That's it from Ephesians 6. And so if I were the enemy, and praise God I'm not, 
but if I were the enemy, what would you do? You try to take out the, the opposing team's offense first, right? The best defense is a good offense. You hear that a lot in war strategy. Well, if you don't have a good offense, then you're going to be on your heels the whole time. And that's exactly what Satan would want you to do. So if he can water down the word of God, he can weaken you and make you ineffective and make it where your children are susceptible to things, where you're susceptible to things. So we're going to look at that a lot next week. It's going to be really, really, it's going to be powerful. So I just, I pray that all of you take this in mind. Just think about that this week. But the word of God, you know, it is time. It really is. It is time to take the, for the church to take the fight to the enemy. And how many of you were coming up on February, March time frame? It'll be two years since the church was shut down. Can you believe that? Two years. And not necessarily here in Oklahoma City, but I mean globally. And, and you see the church losing ground in nations. Where now in Canada, they've passed a bill that if you teach the biblical definition of marriage, you can serve up to five years in prison. Think about that. That is unbelievable. That is on the shores of North America. This is not in the Middle East anymore. I remember as a kid, all this persecution was over there, and you could kind of, well, it's, it's in Africa or the Middle East. It, it's, we're okay here, but it's coming here. And if the church doesn't stand up and do something about it, it will come to Oklahoma at some point. It may not be this year or next year or even in our lifetime, but there would come a point when your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will be the exact same thing. They'll be arrested for walking through the door. And we know ultimately it gets to that point during the seven-year tribulation with the Antichrist not allowing anyone to worship Messiah. If you do that openly, you're not only an enemy of the state, you are executed on spot. So that is the way the world is going. And the Bible will be declared as hate speech. That is what the Canadian law says. It is hate speech. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And it's sad. And we should all be praying for it and praying against it. But it's time to build up our faith. We have, you have access, anyone that has an iPhone, you have access to the word of God at your your fingers 24-7 right now. There will come a time, though, that it's going to be taken off the app store. There will come a time that they'll track you and know, hey, he's got the Bible app. He's dangerous. That's what they did when we backed out of Afghanistan. What did the Taliban do? They went around, and anyone that had the Bible on their phone, they killed. Now, why? When you think about that, why? Why would that be their focus? Because it is a spiritual warfare. We are in a warfare. We are not in this game of life. We're in a warfare, and the enemy, again, wants to kill us. So we've got to learn the weapons of our warfare. Hebrews 11.1, what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's what faith is. Now, how do you get it, and why is it important? Well, it's important because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you need to know how to get it. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That's the only way to get faith, is to be in the word of God. And how often should you do it? Acts 17, 11, daily. You've got to do it daily. And I am totally convinced that God, when he called together this body, the remnant of believers, the sheep were scattered in 2020. 
And it's one thing that he really spoke to me a lot about is that they need a place, my remnant, my believers need a place to come in and be fostered and to be strengthened by the word of God. And they're going to go out and make disciples and bring more people into the body of Christ. And that's exactly what God did at Judges. Remember with Gideon, he filtered down, 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 down until finally you get to Gideon's 300 and they were the 300 that would not bow the knee. That's who they were. They were warriors. They stood upright and they grabbed the living water and they drank of it with their hands. That's what we are to do. Grab the sword of the spirit. Grab a hold of it and know how to use it. Don't bow down to the world. You're to be blameless without wrinkle. Remember from Ephesians, without wrinkle, without bowing down to the world. That's the, that's the goal. If you're watching this online and you want to know how to get born again, it's really simple. It's very simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You don't have to add anything to it and you can't take anything from it. It's not what you did. It's what he did. It's what he did on the cross. And he paid it all. All you have to do is confess with your mouth. Praise God, the thief on the cross. Jesus didn't say, man, I wish I could take you with me, but you weren't baptized. Yeah, I really would, I really would love to see you there, but you didn't give to the poor. You know, I'd love to usher you into paradise with me, but gosh, you didn't read the Bible every day like I wanted you to. All of those are things you do after you get saved to deepen your relationship with him and to draw closer to him. But praise God, it starts by just confessing with your mouth and you will be saved. You have a ticket punched to go to heaven right then. The question is, how close do you want to get to him then after that ticket's punched? That's the question. You can take your, your place in the army of Christ. Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, yet they shall be as white as snow. That's what he does. He wipes them all away. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Thank you guys for being here. We'll see you next week. Lord, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you, God, that you preserved it for almost 6,000 years for us today as a guidebook to this warfare that we find ourselves in. We are plunged into a battle that, God, you have given us everything we need to take the fight back to the enemy. And Lord, I pray that you'd raise up men and women around this world, in this church, raise up your remnant that says no more. We're not giving any more land to the enemy. That we are standing our ground on the word of God and the rock that is Jesus Christ. And we are going to say no more to our children, no more to our schools, no more weakening our marriages. No more trying to water down the supernatural. But Lord, that we are going to fight with everything we have because you fought with everything you have for us to get us to this place. Thank you, God, that you are a warrior king and that we get to come back with you, Jesus, on that white horse in Revelation 19. We love you, God. Be with us as we leave this place. And Lord, we do pray a hand of supernatural healing upon all of the families that couldn't be here today. God, there are many in our communities that are ill. There are many that are fighting off 
sicknesses and illnesses of some kind, Lord, we just pray a supernatural breath of God that you would breathe through Oklahoma City and Edmond and breathe through the homes of all of these families and let that wind carry this illness away and raise them up to new life. Breathe in their lungs, put their lungs back together, take it out of their bloodstream, rearrange the molecules in their body, God, to give them energy and strength to fight and to stand up right now. No more pain, no more suffering, no more coughing, no more illness, no more fatigue. God, we just pray that you would step down in this city and take back this land. Redeem the land, Father. We love you. Be with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.